Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Uh, better than you, apparently. Yeah, I know. Uh, send me off to the tropics at first. I... You, you are, you are, you are, you are. How do they put it? Fine, correct. I, I am. I am <laughs> fine. I am very fine right now. You send me off to the tropics. At first, I thought I got a cold, and there's nothing more miserable than getting uh, a cold in in the middle of the the tropics. And then I it it was persisting a little too long, and it was a little too centered in my chest. And I went to see the doctor, and he's like, oh. Uh, actually, I think this might be pneumonia. So I've started on antibiotics <laughs> and I'm feeling, I started this morning and I'm already feeling a bunch better. But yeah. I just laughed at you, which is terrible. Uh, but you're, you're you're doing this whole like not working thing all wrong. I, apparently I am. Like I'm pretty sure th- this is not what people recommend you do. Everyone is, you You know that some number of listeners are, have just a little bit of schadenfreude after, after hearing that you were, you were, uh, flitting off to Bali to take a yoga class. Yeah, that's right. And then I managed to uh, pick up a massive chest infection. Anyway, uh, karma or something, I don't know. <laughs> well, don't die, don't die at us. But we appreciate you. We appreciate you trooping through through this podcast. The show must go on, Ben. The show <laughs> must go on. Uh, so speaking of, the, speaking of the show going on, uh, it will not go on next week. So just a quick heads up to our listeners. You will be traveling. Um, I, I got to point this out because usually we, when we miss, it's because I'm traveling. But uh, you will be traveling, so we will resume the, the week after that. So just a quick heads up. Yeah, this one's on me, folks. I'm heading, I'm heading halfway across the planet and uh, have exams to make sure I actually pass and become a certified yoga instructor. So ne- next week's going to be a little bit crazy. And pneumonia to overcome. Let's let's not forget that. Yes, I've I, I probably yes that that wouldn't be a bad idea to get over that as well. I agree. Anyhow, before we get started, I want to thank Mailchimp. Mailchimp is the exclusive sponsor of Exponent, and also I am a happy customer of Mister Checkery. Uh, Mailchimp offers forever free pricing. Uh, you can send up to twelve thousand emails a month to a list of up to two thousand subscribers with Mailchimp's forever free plan. Although the, only a few features are available to paying users, so they think. What what might you ask? Is it really free forever, James? You should ask. Is it really free forever? Is it really free forever, Ben? It, it sure is. As long as you've got two thousand or fewer subscribers across all lists in your account, you can send up to twelve thousand emails per month without paying a dime. They won't even ask for a credit card. So you can go ahead and get started. Uh, James, you may want to ask, why should I upgrade to a paid account? As a paying customer, you can send more than 12,000 emails a month, access additional features, and remove MailChimp's badge from your campaign footers. I, I do have to say, I, I, re- I started on the free account, and given, given my business, it was very gratifying when I had to move off of the free account. But I can attest it exists, and you don't need a credit card, and it's a great way to get started. It's an awesome service. We can highly recommend it. Good. Our thanks to MailChimp again for, for sponsoring Exponent both this episode and uh, for the entire year. Uh, so there, this week, uh, I got sent an article multiple times by multiple people, and uh, I happened to write about that article and received even more responses saying, I knew you were going to write that article. What's funny is that the article in question, which is about newspapers written by Jack Schaefer at, at Political, uh, was um, was actually not 
I actually knew what I wanted to write about this week. That just, but I was having a really hard time figuring out like what's the framing for the topic I want to write about. And and along comes uh, Mr. Schaefer dropping this on, in my lap. So my thanks, my thanks to Jack for, like, for that. Like manna from heaven when that happens. <laughs> you have the topic and you're like, how do I get into this? And all of a sudden, uh, the article appears that gives you your lead. It's it's nice, isn't it? It is. It is. And as a bonus, this is kind of a topic I've been going on about on Twitter a little bit. We talked about it a few a few weeks ago. But this idea of like what actually killed you know newspapers and journalism business model that sort of thing so it was nice to actually be able to write it down in an article so i mean again i i've previously expressed thanks to such luminaries as steve balmer who as i noted provided like 50 percent of the fodder for the first six months of strategy but now i get to add uh jack schaefer to that illustrious list so thank you sir absolutely anyhow uh the 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 topic at hand is actually very much born from a few of our recent conversations where I've brought up a few times that you can't think about the technology era as one continuous era, that there's this very clear distinction between sort of what I call in this article, the IT era and the internet era, or as I put it, the internet revolution. Mm. And the reason, and and to in in this case, newspapers actually worked very well to to exemplify what, what I was talking about. So just to pr- briefly put aside the article in, in question, uh, Schaefer argued that perhaps one of the reasons why newspapers died was because the print edition was much better than the online edition. They should have never made an online edition, and people, if, if people still. You know, print because print is better. People enjoy it more, and so the big mistake was what killed newspapers was going online and providing a worse user experience. It, yeah, right. I, that's a you know I, we'll get we'll get into it a little bit more. I feel like he had a couple of really good points, but there are a couple of confusing elements. Like he was almost making conflicting points at various points throughout the article, but that was definitely one of the core ones. Yeah, and, and just to briefly, I mean, the, the big issue for newspapers is that. We, people read local newspapers because it was the only thing available to read, right? If you wanted to read newspapers, if you wanted to read the daily news, you want to read sports, if you wanted to read on the train or or wherever it might be, you had one or two choices. It was the newspaper in your area. Area, and the fundamental problem is once the internet came along, that 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 was gone. You could read anything you wanted to, and that could be a blog. It could be. It could be, you know, online message boards, but it could also be other newspapers. And if you could read the best newspapers, whatever best is in your definition, then why would you necessarily read the one that that, that is local? And obviously, and this was exacerbated for sure by all the cost cutting that followed, and you know, cutting off the 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 most valuable or the most experienced journalists and whatnot. And so this all built on itself, but at a very very fundamental level, what killed newspapers is that the linchpin of their business model was that geographic wall that they had in controlling distribution within a geographic area. And once that was gone, once the linchpin was gone, like the definition of a linchpin is you pull it out and everything sort of falls apart. Right. And and so he's the argument of the, the article was basically like perhaps they shouldn't have gone online. And it's funny because I felt very conflicted about this. On one hand, it felt like he was – it was the it was uh, an example of thinking that was utterly 
it, it like managed to completely ignore all the trends that were happening all around it. And you make a, you made a really good point in your article. It's like, well, there's people have a finite amount of attention. And all of a sudden, they have all these other fantastic options to spend this attention on. And for the newspaper industry to think, well, the reason our profits declined is because, oh, well, you know, we we created this online version and it wasn't as good. And that's what caused our customers to disappear. Just seems to me to be naive in the extreme. But on the other hand, and he kind of gets to this towards the end, it, it it's he, he it, it's kind of implied that, well, the the as you said the linchpin was pulled out perhaps newspapers should have just ridden their cash cow to the end and not made all these investments in digital because they wouldn't have been able to compete with the yahoos and all the aggregators and just ridden out uh, like like squeezed every last dollar out of their existing assets that they could have and on some level from a business perspective at least that kind of makes sense yeah, no, I agree. There, there's, there's something to be said for that. But we're talking, but I mean, we're talking about extending the runway, right? Not, not very far, not very far, far at all. If anything, I think the mistake that was made, and when I read like the first, you know, the first sentence of this, uh, that's where I thought it was going. The mistake that was made is that uh, it'd be very interesting as a counterfactual to know what the world would look like if newspapers had been paywalled from the beginning mm. because there was already an expectation that you pay for the newspaper right and that that went away immediately with the internet now the and maybe that would have just completely changed you know there's like the uh what, what like a path dependency sort of thing right maybe what once we started on a path where that was the expectation maybe lots of things would be different our expectations about content and, and, mm. and what we're willing to pay the challenge, the, the the reason I'm skeptical is one, it's hard to remember, but back then the idea yeah. of paying for anything on the internet was completely anathema and didn't and didn't even occur to people. And if it did, like you were like shouted down from you know f- f- from the rafters. Oh, there was this there was this ongoing thing about you would have to be crazy to put your credit card details into the internet because it'll just turn into this massive online fraud scam. You'll be cleaning up the the wreckage for the next six months. I remember that very clearly. Right. Well, because it, it was on both sides. It was both on the consumers won't pay. It was on the support. Like there weren't tools to implement this sort of thing. But also, just like the really the very idea of paying for stuff on the internet in part because how the internet started is kind of the province of geeks and the free sharing mm. information all that sort of stuff it was like culturally not not just from a credit card perspective but culturally the idea of charging for content on the internet was was completely anathema it was it was there was a time when blogs first started where it was a big deal to put ads on your blog is like that's not that's not right. what blogs are for. They're like that, and it was like a moral thing. And it's one of those things you can look back and say, obviously, this should have happened. Mm-hmm. But if you were there at the time, it's very easy to, if anything, it would have been a miracle for it to have happened because there were so many forces against it. And that's not to mention the fact that the 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 all the economic forces that have led to where we are would not have gone away. There still would have been other free content. You still have access to all the content in the world and there will still be lots of things taking up your time. And so it, it, I don't think it would make a difference regardless, but it's a, it's a more interesting argument, I would say. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that at the outset. And I think your points about why it might not have worked are correct, but it is certainly an interesting thought, a thought experiment to say if they put a, a paywall up from the outset, would, would the world look differently? And yeah, maybe it would. 
Yeah, the, the 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 big problem that the internet really exacerbates, and this is something I, I've talked about a few times uh, in articles and in daily updates, is is like the collective action problem, which is mm-hmm. where there there may be something that's optimal for everyone, but it's not optimal for the individual. And as long as that's the case, you you're never it's never going to happen, right? If every single publication on the internet put up a paywall or join together to have like a, a, you know, like a Spotify type system where you pay one, one price and you can read anything you want that you can envision a future or you can envision a scenario where everyone makes money and we have a business model that works, Mm. but there is no way to get from here to there. Right. Right. And it's just like the ultimate in the prisoner's dilemma problem, like the, the incentives for the, for the actor to be the first one to break that and put that content out there and attract all the readers that are only going to be interested in free content is so huge. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is, I've thought about this a fair bit in the context of Shatekery because people will ask me, like, that now there's more and more paid newsletters, right? I mean, it, it's a it's a model that works. And I know, and there's other people that have been successful, and I'm I'm thrilled to hear it, even though they are they are my direct competitors, right? If, if someone else has a paid newsletter, they're competing not just for the same dollar that I want, but they're also competing for the attention in the inbox that is is the most valuable thing that that I have with Shrekery. So the problem, though, is, so like, oh, what if there was like a bundle where you could get multiple newsletters and, and all, all at the same time? Well, there, so there's a few problems here. The problem is, one, like I'm, I, I'm very successful with Shrekery and if I was in a bundle, I would need to sell to it would need to sell to a, a significantly greater number of people than I have right now for me to make any like any right. sort of comparable right. comparable income. Right. The problem is if if I ref- and everyone thinks this way, but as long as everyone thinks this way, you're never going to have a compelling enough bundle that will actually sell enough. Right. So so it's like you have to everyone has to act at the same time with to achieve a thing but the problem is the thing isn't there yet because when you're gonna get all the readers right it takes years to build up a subscriber base right are all my readers going to transfer how's it going to work and the and as long as it's not optimal for me the individual even if in the long run it might be good for the group it's just not going to happen because it's a collective action problem right i know i mean the other alternative is someone who really has this vision for doing it comes along and quote unquote buys up all these individual newsletters and bundles them up but there's a whole bunch of problems that are associated with that as well. It's it's a it's hard to pull off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's a reason why in some scenarios like venture capital makes sense, right? So you need to buy in like a certain level of market share, particularly in two-sided markets. This is mm-hmm. why like say Uber for example spends so much money because two-sided marketplaces require a huge jump start to get going because you have to get you have to get a certain amount of critical mass unless you can lever into it from like a from from the side where you you have an existing product with a big user base and then you layer on the marketplace aspects and you already have a critical mass on one side anyhow the whole point is like in news in text on the internet in general that's not that's never going to work there's just too many options there's too many things to read on there there's too many distractions for your time and th- you're never, especially in the English language. I think you, you do see some areas where it's work, where it's working, but it's usually small countries with their own language, and mm. and you have fewer actors, and so yeah. coordination is is easier in English on the internet. I, I have a very hard time ever seeing something like that happening. Yeah, I w- I would agree with that. It's just too hard. And, you know, after after briefly just saying, you know, the real reason why newspapers died, I I, w- I noted about like U.S. newsroom employment, and there's something really interesting here, which is that. Newspaper revenue continued to grow until the 
somewhere in the 2000s, I believe, uh, before it, it's, it started to dip before the Great Recession. Then it fell off a cliff and it never recovered. And it's, and it's still it's still plummeting. And along around that time, that's when newspaper employment really started to plummet, like by half or something like that. Just just an amazing number of 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 journalists, you know, let go from their positions. And it's very sad and unfortunately, we're not trying to be callous here um, by, by any means. That, that was probably the most callous sounding apology for not being callous, but I'm <laughs> sincere about it. I'm, 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 I was trying to think of something to like throw you a line, but I, you're out there on your own, I'm afraid. But what was interesting is, is from about 1985 or so, for the next 20 years, newspapers were growing in revenue but the employment stopped growing it was it was very flat and before before the decline started and i don't know this for sure like i i w- i tried to find any studies about this but if you back up and think about what was happening in newspapers in that time the way newspapers used to be produced was with typewriters and and you'd pass copy along and it'd be marked up and you have to type it up again and then you would like literally cut and paste it into onto a sheet and and you would then put it press it onto the plates and then you you print it it was this very cumbersome manual process that benefited hugely from computers right and like this is this kind of this is the same kind of thing that we've been talking about the past few episodes where the 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 benefits that IT brought about to this industry just like a whole bunch of other industries were absolutely huge like the 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 quantum leap in efficiency that's involved from having people cut and paste things literally f- like pieces of paper and scissors and move them around versus being able to to use the desktop publishing revolution like that's huge it's hard to overstate how big an impact that that had right and this is another example of why I, I love to talk about what happened in newspapers and it's it's not just because I love newspapers and and I'm a member of the media and all that I mean of course that plays a role but it's because newspapers were were text and images right they're bits like it the whole process was perfectly a it was perfect for computers. And so I, again, I couldn't find exact numbers on this, but I suspect of all the industries that benefited from the personal computer, the newspaper business had to be one of the greatest beneficiaries by far, just in in the efficiency gain. And I suspect uh, that's why employment after rising for many, many years was very flat, even as revenue kept going up because that you just needed fewer people to do what you did before. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it actually means that the number of journalists that were employed was actually going up as the number of like backhouse staff tended to decline as a result of all those efficiency gains. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised that's the case. Again, I, I couldn't find more exact numbers. Um, this is just newsroom employment, and that includes the copy editors, includes people that did the, the design and the copy and pasting, all that sort of stuff. But I, I strongly suspect that you're right. Yeah. So the, the, this is what's so interesting is that the first era of technology was great for newspapers. It made them more profitable. It made them better businesses. It made them more attractive places you know, to invest and to get a return on your capital from. But the second one, the internet, destroyed newspapers. And to me, this really gets at the point, I, like we've been talking about this podcast, about what makes these two eras so different, the IT era versus the internet era. The first one made existing businesses better and more efficient. And the bigger you were and the bigger pocketbook you had and the more you could afford to do all those implementations of ERP systems stuff that we've been talking about, the more you would benefit. Like the, the gains actually went to the biggest companies. 
the internet, on the other hand, challenged the very basis on which their business models rested. Yeah, it turned it on its head, right? Like the 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 necessity to have all those ERP systems, all those things that had prompted so many efficiency gains in the previous era almost almost became symbolic of the millstone around their necks as new and interesting small little players started to pop up that were super fast and super nimble that didn't have to worry about dealing with all these behemoth systems from a bygone era. Right. What's interesting is I, I'm actually, this. if you think about Professor Christensen, when he when he described disruptive innovation, he set it up by by first describing what he calls sustaining innovations. Right. And so sustaining innovations are where it is it is basically improving. I mean, the way that I like to think about it is it fits into the existing business model of incumbents. So it helps them make more money. It, it, it helps them develop a better product that their customers are willing to pay more for or to take cost out, out of their business. And you contrast that with disruptive innovations, which incumbents, when they look at, don't see that they are it is orthogonal to their existing business model like they can pick up parts of the technology and deploy it in a sustaining way but they can never take full advantage of it because the the to take full advantage of it requires an entirely different business model and so they don't want a part of it and it requires someone with a clean sheet of paper to come along and say hey if we take this technology and apply it with a completely new business model in a completely new way then we're going to be able to compete in a way that has hasn't previously been possible. Right. And so this is so here's here's the bombshell that I'm about to drop on you. So if you think about it in those terms, you could frame the entire IT era, which everyone talks about being so disruptive, as actually in the context of business broadly was a, was sustaining. It made all the businesses that were already established better and more efficient and stronger and entrenched them. I think that's a completely reasonable argument to make. And the internet, on the other hand, enables completely new business models that do the same jobs that all those companies did, but do it in completely new ways. Like I, I am doing the same job that your local newspaper did. I am giving people content that arrives in their mailbox every morning and they read it over coffee. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the same thing, right? But I'm doing it in a complete doing it from Taipei, you know, on a super niche focus area and and reach these people and every minute they spend reading Shotekri is minutes they are not sp spending reading newspapers. Yeah. And every dollar they give me is dollar that's not going to newspapers. And am I a competitor for the New York Times? Well, by any traditional analysis, of course not. From a where do people spend their money? Where do they spend their time? For sure. Like that's textbook disruption. It totally is. I, I think I think this is a I, I think you're you're spot on actually. I think one of the things that people what people fail to appreciate about disruption and the point you just made then highlights it so well is that disruption and sustaining is always a relative phenomenon. So the, the internet 
in in the context of what you just described, it's absolutely disruptive. I mean, IT could have been disruptive, but it just depends on the circumstance. Now, I think you're right. Most of the time, people do talk about IT more in a, in a disruptive manner. But when you step back and you look at it in the context that you just described, actually, you're, you're, you're entirely right. Like, you're sending your news, newsletter from Taipei and there's not an ERP system in sight. And if you had to put all the, if you had to support like uh, an Oracle or a SAP uh, ERP system, I, I don't know whether you'd have got your enterprise off the ground. Right, because it's the cost structure is what really gets in the way, right? It totally does. Well, there's a few things that are a problem for sustaining for for an incumbent business, but a huge one is cost structure. And you, this is definitely the case in in the vast majority of old school publications. Like they had all these costs, like whether it be printing press, whether it be ad sales teams, like in the in the, in the age of the internet. Why is any publication in the long run selling their own ads? It doesn't make any sense. But they have all they have this whole apparatus, and you have this crazy debate every time Facebook or Snapchat does something like, "Well, this is why it's the question about being on someone else's platform versus sending them to your own site." Sending them to your own site for what? For what purpose? To sell and you're going to compete in selling ads? Like, yes, some bit sites are now, but the long run trends are are that that that's not that's not going to work out. And so, why are content makers? Also, ad sellers. I, I mean, I think it's a fantastic question, and I think the way that, it, in, like in the con, in the context of thinking about, uh, you mentioned it in a daily update with Snapchat. Why a TV, someone who makes a TV show, would then make money on the basis of how well they can sell ads against their TV show, as opposed to leaving it to the network to figure it out. Like, I think that's a great example. I think the problem is not that they think that they should do it. It's more the question. I think it's more an example of how the world has changed so much. And the folks that have been in that world haven't come along and re-examined the fundamental assumptions and said, actually, it makes no sense for us to do this anymore. We should let somebody else do it and just focus on the thing that we do best because we are no longer able to compete. It's just because that's the way they've always done it. And they haven't they haven't stopped to take pause like you just did and said, hang on, this makes no more sense. There's no point doing it anymore. And this is this is exactly what happens in all these in all these big shifts. Is you're in this is where culture comes in. It's where mm. all those things come in. You're so for some reason I don't do much speaking anymore. But I was I was doing a fair bit of speaking for a little bit. And media companies always like like to hire me. I think they love to hear people tell them how doomed they are. It's like a journalistic you know, twitch. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it literally like I, I would make this, this is one of the main points I would make it, and it would blow their minds or they would like or they wouldn't get it and they, they are with me like the, this idea that you would not like this the whole reason why ad selling was glued onto content creation was because one company owned the printing press right like that's where it all devolved from. And once that printing press is gone, you're sticking with a business model that's predicated on something that doesn't matter anymore. And and it's so hard. It's it's painfully hard, especially if you're in it and your livelihood depends on it, all those sayings that you talk about, or to even countenance the, the a world where that's not the case. Right. But the problem is if you don't countenance it, you start to look at the numbers that that were in that were in your article or any article talking about 
the the journalistic, the media, the newspaper world. Like you, you're it just you're gonna drive off a cliff. And when this is happening, like that's exactly when you need to start saying, actually, guys, we need to revisit some of these fundamental assumptions and check that they still do. And if you did, you'd come to the conclusion that you just came to, which is okay. We were we were we were bundling the content and the ads because. Like in every in every market that a that a local newspaper was operating in, we had to because there was no alternative. Because if we didn't create both these things, the market wouldn't be made. But in the new world, that's not the way it is. There is there is ownership of consumers, their eyes, the experience of what it's like, the 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 owning the user experience rather. Uh, places like Facebook, like you're going to try and compete on selling ads against a Facebook that has all this scale, all this knowledge of customers. No, your competency is going to be in creating the content. Create the content, put it on the platform and let it compete on its own merits. Don't try and compete with Facebook on ads because with very few exceptions, I don't think that's going to be a winning proposition for a newspaper. Right. And, well, th- this is the challenge, though. If I could put back on my callous hat, mm. uh, the 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 when you're experiencing like true disruption, the reality is, and this goes back to where we we opened up. There's not really anything you can do. It, it, even if newspapers would have been totally attuned to what was happening, the the this like tons of newspapers have closed, and lots of journalists lost their jobs. And fa- frankly, Facebook's monetization for publishers is not there yet. Right? There's this gap. There's this long space between the business of the future and the one that came before. And the the truth is, as much as you know, incumbent companies per my speak per my speaking fees, like they will pay the money for the consultants and the speakers and all that sort of thing. But the the unfortunate reality is when true disruption happens, companies die. Yeah. No, no, no doubt about it. And listen, like I like I better than anybody else know this like sticking around clay and like going around and meeting some of the companies that he was talking to going through it like and then seeing how it plays out and seeing why it's so insidious because even when you know it's happening there's nothing you can do about it and yet at the same time we started off 20 minutes ago talking about how um how if someone had the wherewithal to create a bundle of the best content and put it all together and and sell it onto the internet, that could be a fantastic proposition, not just for content creators, but also for customers. And I can't help but wonder who would be better placed than than uh, than a, a popular newspaper trying to make the transition into the new era to say, you know what, these are our best these are our best writers. Here are a few other promising ones. We have this massive audience. Let's try experimenting with something completely different where we deliver this into people's inboxes. Like that's the kind of experimentation that. And yeah, you need a separate organization to do it. And yeah, it's very easy for me, of course, to say this on a podcast and very hard to do it, particularly when there's an existing business that has results that are demanded by shareholders and so on. But if you know that this is going to happen and you can see the writing on the wall and the numbers are all tanking, then, you know, trying things like this are exactly what they should have been doing. Yeah, but when the numbers were tanking and the writing was on the wall, it's it was too already late. too late. Yeah, yeah right. and I'm pretty fatalistic about this, to be honest. I feel companies and industries that are truly disrupted, like according to like the textbook definition mm. of the term that we're talking about, I think you're screwed. Like I, I just don't think there's any way to come back from it. And and like your best hope is to scrape, by, like to barely survive to the dis- 
to the extent where you can make massive changes and you have some sort of differentiator that is applicable to the new era, but absent like in some extreme measure of differentiation, it, it, it's hard. It, it's hard to see oh, it, it it's, happening. Yeah, yeah. It absolutely is hard. It's 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 that that's the that's why it is so insidious. Like you see what's happening and you can't bring yourself to do anything different anyway and again by the time you see it's happening the the amount of time you need to start up something new and to seed it and to have that engine of growth start firing to support you as the old engine starts to fade you're right it's probably too late um yeah and you're also dealing with all the like like on the the internet for example you were dealing with the cultural factors and there weren't tools and like there's there's all this there's all this stuff that goes into it. Anyhow, uh, uh, there's a bigger, broader point that I, that I think is interesting about this. If you if you start out with this with this idea that the first stage of technology was sustaining, and the second stage is disruptive, and it's not disruptive from a business or industry perspective. It's disruptive from a systemic societal perspective. Like I, I wrote a lot about this this summer. Right? How the entire edifice, like the post-World War II order, is all intertwined. You have people watching football, which, by the way, is down. So my sports article is pretty prescient in that regard. Uh, you, you have people watching football and seeing advertisements for retailers, for CPG companies, for for those kind of business, for, for cars. They get in their car. They drive to Walmart. They buy their Tide laundry detergent. Like, all none of that stuff necessarily makes sense in the future, right? It doesn't make sense to go to the store to buy laundry detergent when you can get laundry detergent delivered to your house or in an urban area to the new Amazon convenience stores. How convenient. It doesn't make sense to drive if there is a service that will automatically cart you around in a self-driving car. And it certainly doesn't make sense to go to a Walmart that's predicated on offering massive selection when you have infinite selection online. And, and and if you have if all those companies are failing, then the advertising edifice is failing. And oh by the way, TV's already failing because you have all this video on demand and all the other things on the internet. All that stuff's interconnected and it's all getting destroyed by the internet and like this and so when you think of people tell oh where's all the productivity games to the internet what's going to happen you know where why aren't we seeing any where, why isn't well productivity games is the productivity paradox to me the biggest issue is that the ch- it's that the changes are too big they're too big to be captured in sort of measurements we're first we have to destroy everything and then we are building what, what's new and it's a step change. And to me, it's because people think about, they think about the first era of technology and they find and they got a handle on how that worked and how that affected the world. And that's the frame people are applying to this next era. And my contention is that's totally wrong. Yes, they're both about technology, but they are fundamentally different innovations in the way they apply to society broadly. Yeah. I I I I don't think I would argue with that. It's interesting to think about it's interesting to think about the fact that you need to tear it all down before you build it all up and the reason that you're not seeing this in the numbers is because there's this process whereby what's being built up is actually in the process of is almost simultaneously tearing down the existing as well and therefore the numbers look flat. 
but as that continues there there's going to be at the tail end i mean i'm assuming inherent in the argument at the tail end of when the old is all removed the in, the increased growth that is associated with the new will will more than outweigh everything that's been destroyed in the past well this is why it's so it's hard to make cuz it's not a one for one replacement right what is so insidious about this is it's a point one for one replacement you are having these small tech companies relative to the industrial behemoths of before coming in and obliterating entire industries. And, and I mean, so I used AI as an example. Even AI isn't quite, I mean, it's, is it an internet technology? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. But th- th- that's just very, I think, easy for people to kind of conceptualize. The idea that when, when AI replaces a worker, that, that, that worker now has nothing to do. And the way we will measure the gain of that AI is not by the replacement of the worker or the whatever GDP of the company that yeah. makes the AI. The way we will measure the gain is what that worker does in the future because she is now freed to do something else. And it, it's the same case for all this sort of stuff. All the money that goes to ERP systems, all the money that goes to Walmarts, all the money that goes into cars, all that energy and money and time and attention is all going to be obsolete. And where in the future might that be invested? Where might that be focused? Where might that be spent? And it's a hard argument to make because we don't know, right? It, this is a bet on like human ingenuity and potential. It's a bet that we used to be a society where 98% of people were farmers and now 2% are. And we all managed to figure out what to do with ourselves. It's so it's interesting because it's actually making me think about how imperfect a measure GDP is, right? Because if you if you build a car and it sits in a garage and barely gets used at all, the the increase in GDP that's associated with it is the value of all the components in the car and what people bought it for and all those elements. But it's not an efficient use of those resources when you think about it as compared to having someone uh, having something like Uber on the road where that, that same vehicle has a much higher utilization rate. It's really hard. And, and at, at the same time, like you think about the improvements in advertising technology, like the amount that was spent on an ad in a newspaper versus the amount that's spent on a, a highly targeted uh, ad on Facebook or Google, like the the GDP amounts are the same, but the way in which that capital is being deployed is way more efficient. Like you digitize everything, you have so much more intelligence about what's going on. All this stuff that you needed to build because previously it was it was so blunt and there was so much wastage in the system. All the wastage is being taken out, but from a GDP perspective, that actually makes it look like there's a negative impact when really we're just getting a lot more efficient in the way we build and deploy these services. Yeah, I mean, the GDP thing is really hard. I mean, just because the, the I guess the one I'd push back a little bit is the car thing, because theoretically, if a car is being utilized more, it's depreciating faster and you need mm. to buy a newer car. And so all things like obviously a car that's just sitting around will also depreciate even if it's not being used. So it's not quite exact. But theoretically, the change in GDP should be it should be level, right? But the the real productivity gain is if I'm sitting in an Uber instead of driving, or I'm in a self-driving car instead of driving myself, what can I do in the meantime, right? What if I start a newsletter while I'm sitting in a self-driving car and like, you know, there's, or whatever it might be, or invent mm. a new concept. Like it's the stuff that can be done by freed up resources, the new things that can be created. That's how 
GDP will grow. And the the challenge here is you're going to have this intervening period where companies like Amazon, like Amazon is the Amazon's the big Amazon's in the middle of all this sort of stuff, but Amazon's coming along and it's wiping out all these 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 industries and companies, CPG companies, um, you know, big mm-hmm. retailers, whatever it might be. The the issue is there there is at best like a level from like a GDP perspective because the the gains to society from Amazon doing that are when all the capital and labor involved in those CPG companies and in the retailers are redeployed to something else. That's the death part that that is the delay, right? The replacement is happening now, but the gains are not going to happen until the death happens, if right. that makes sense. And then, I mean, and the question that has everybody so transfixed is, can we redeploy particularly a lot of the human capital in a way that is productive? Like there are lots of people in in that Walmart, for example, in a a, a small town in a state of the US whose job it was to help people there. And not that they're being paid super well, but they have a job. If that job goes away and they're no longer doing that, can you redeploy them in such a way where there can be some additional gain to society, humanity, or, or, or measurable economic activity if you want to look at it that way. And I mean, that's a it's an interesting question to ponder, right? Oh, it's it's a terrifying question, and it's something I, I mean, I, it's a question I've been pondering from the beginning of Shatek of Shatekery. The it's one it's one of those things where you can see. You can. It's very easy to envision a world, say, a hundred years from now, or however long it might take, where there's all this automation and and new ways of doing that. That all these businesses that are predicated on internet assumptions, and there's people you know are doing all kinds of new jobs that were couldn't even imagine mm. before. You know, mm. and you can see how that will happen. It just like it happened with the industrial revolution. The problem is the industrial revolution basically. We made. How do we make up for it in the meantime? We fought a bunch of wars and killed each other, and that's how we kept people busy. <laughs> that's 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 the fear. That's the concern. Yeah, and and that's a that's a it's, that's a legitimate concern. And to be perfectly frank, some of what I think we and not that I want to get deep down into politics, but as we've discussed previously, like some of what I think we're seeing in this U.S. election or what happened in the U.K. with Brexit is like is the starting point of some of the manifestations of people who have been displaced as a result of of these machinations starting to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and and of course that triggers all kinds of latent issues or when when you feel like it's a zero-sum game like yeah you may have yeah um and all the all the awfulness that 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 follows from that but yeah it's it's a it's a it's something i'm i'm very concerned about and to me this is beyond all the the upfront stuff in our politics that's really depressing right now is the lack of conversation about this. I mean, it, President Obama actually had a really. Did you read his thing in Wired about about artificial intelligence and whatnot? I did not. Uh, it, it's really good. It's really thoughtful. I mean, it, 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 I'm going to miss that guy. There, well, there was a tweet last night, or actually, I think it was the first debate, but it was retweeted a bunch last night because uh, Trump's delivered a line a couple times in the debates, like "You're going to get four more years of Obama." And the tweet's like, "That's all we want," or yeah. something like that to right. that effect. Anyhow, it's a funny tweet. We're not being political here, um, but uh, but we're, we're like the things that we're fighting about and the nature of politics and the nature of of 
you, you see it in, in this whole journalism thing. It's so backwards looking, right? It's like, let's, let's write an article about 20 years ago, what went wrong? And that's what we know. The, this, this being able to let go of all your assumptions and everything that you've learned about the world because the new world is different and to start from there and to first and foremost see the potential is so hard, much less to see the potential and then actually start building the the, the means to get there. I mean, this, this is the foundation of my politics. This is why I'm so like, I'm super pro safety net and anti-regulation. Yes. yes. I, I, I was going to say there, it's almost, being able to do that is almost predicated on human beings feeling safe in the first instance. Like it is very hard to, I mean, it's very hard to have conversations like the one we're having when it's, it's the case that you're not sure whether you're going to be able to put food on the table for your family. And when you remove that, that deep, very deep, very human, very primal desire to look after yourself. It's it's like possible to have this nuanced conversation. But when you have a whole bunch of people who are struggling, who are hurting, like it it becomes very hard to get to these higher orders, higher order like let's look forward and think about the amazing future. People are like, no, like like <laughs> forgive me for using this term, but let's make America great again. Let's wind things back to where they used to be because it used to be better. And I think it's that's it's probably like that's endemic to what's happening in journalism. It used to be better. There are a whole bunch of people who are out of jobs, who are scared of losing their jobs, and they're trying to like let's look back to see where we went wrong, went wrong, and maybe we can wind the clock back as opposed to like actually we need to step boldly into the future. Yeah, I saw there. There was this. Uh, there was this anecdote that was. There's like some. some I, I'm trying to find the tweet, but um, there was a, a journalistic conference or talk or something like that, and someone tweeted that the speaker asked, uh, "Who thinks that the?" Oh, here it is. I found it. Uh, it was Nick Denton was being interviewed at this at this at this interview mm. at this journalism conference, and this person was like live tweeting it. And this is the tweet they wrote. Nick Denton says he's one of the few who believe internet will improve the world. Anyone else? And only Jeff Jarvis and Jay Rosen, two two kind of one old journalism Twitter guys, raised their hands. This room full of journalists, no one raised their hands. Yeah, and I mean, uh, uh, like Rosen's, uh, he's faculty at NYU, so he's pretty secure. And Jeff Jarvis is also like, he's, he's faculty also, too. Yeah, yeah, like it, it's like it's easy when you're in a position of security. Well, it's not easy. It is possible when you're in a position of security to look boldly forward and think, you know what, like we can take this and we can turn this challenge into something that's great. But and when we can you, see all the good stuff that's already come about. Right. But but when you're the one that's that's seeing your friends getting fired, when you're worried that you're next and all you want to do is is just what you went to university for and pay off your student debts and do all those things, it's much harder to um imagine to engage in this kind of to to engage in this level of conversation and I, whether it's journalism or politics like I think your point about having a social safety net is right because once people feel secure, it's possible to get to a nuanced debate where people aren't just bringing in base, like when it's when they're worried about base human desires, you get a base level debate where people are like, no, like I'm not interested in nuance. You're just being an intellectual. I want to wind it back to the way things were. Right, but the, the problem is that that's only half my platform. The other platform is is a complete 
rehaul of our of the regulatory system because the the what the internet uniquely enables is is entrepreneurship is small businesses is is a dramatically new number like we talk about the jungle and the jungle the jungle, jungle right? Yeah, right you're going to have these big monsters these big platforms but they're going to have a whole fauna of little stuff on the floor and right now we have there's just the, the, this mess on you know of dead trees and all this sort of stuff on the floor and all stuff that applies to the world. Do we need smart ways of thinking about those giants? For sure. And and I've I've always talked about the need for regulation when it comes yep. to you know natural monopolies and the like. But the reality is when it comes to the little stuff, man, we have to make it so much easier because it's not like that. There's so much potential. The internet unlocks so much, and, and people can't see it. And, and even if they can see it, there's so much that's thrown up in their way unnecessarily for lots of stuff that made sense when it passed. Right? It made sense in the analog world. It made sense when you couldn't track a taxi driver anywhere. It made well, I guess hairdresser regulations we talked before that doesn't make much sense. But <laughs> I mean, all this sort of stuff it made sense at a time, but that time's totally changed. And this is I, and this is the frustration is where's where's the party for for the anti-regulation pro safety net group yeah it's it's it i mean i i think you're spot on i don't think there is one i think the the uh i i'm not sure i'd say it's entirely anti-regulation but i think the way i would frame it as you want to make it as frictionless as possible for someone to be sitting in the back of that uber creating that newsletter and having the business structure around it right we should talk about newsletters i swear the opportunity is much bigger than newsletters just talking with what i yeah right (laughs) No, but it's an easy example that one people can wrap their heads around and it makes it very real, whether it's like sitting in the back making a podcast or whatever it is. Like you don't want to have it so that people need to spend infinite amounts of money on lawyers and figuring out what state to set things up at and companies and then all the tax burden and the crazy regulations and if you need to hire somebody like Oh, it's crazy. How- I spend I spend five figures on on, on accountants and lawyers. Like it's 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 insane. It sh- and it shouldn't be like I, I again. I won't say I'm anti-regulation. I think there is a very good case to be made for regulations for a bunch of different things. But when it comes to doing something like what you're doing or what we're doing here, there's no good reason for it to be highly regulated. Like get what you need so we can easily pay our taxes and get the hell out of our way. Yeah, it'll, 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 yeah. I mean, we're gonna get we're gonna get a lot of crap for for that whole segment. But the. Oh, well. the like yeah, we'll deal. The I've got pneumonia. I've got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> like there real there is there's so much potential. The internet unlocks so many opportunities. I mean, you're starting to see little stuff like shops on spot or using Shopify or on Etsy or or selling through Amazon. Like these platforms enable incredible opportunities. YouTube, like look at the whole YouTube star universe. There's there's yeah. tons of people making great money it's 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 incredible it, like it's crazy like you're like these like this whole makeup world thing it's it, it's uh, it blows my mind it's this whole it's this whole it, it's like there's all these jobs that you never thought possible we're already seeing the very edge of them and i'm an optimist i believe in humanity i i i believe that there's a reason we've moved from cavemen to now there's a reason we've moved from the the middle ages to now and we are capable and driven and infinitely amusable and borable and there will be lots of products to satisfy those two states of the human mind but we we have to make it easier to happen make it easier 
yeah, I'm, I'm no, doing up. I can't even talk straight. You, you're right, though, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen with you. I got a taste of it trying to set this podcast up. But I've mentioned previously, my sister's set up an online jewelry brand, and the amount of craziness that she's had to jump through to get everything sorted up. When you just want to let people who are doing something like this, you just want to get them going and get out of their way because. Fostering this kind of thing is what's going to replace the jobs that are disappearing as these old behemoths start to fall by the wayside. And if you make it difficult for people to do that, that 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 they're not going to do it, or eventually they get fed up and say, "Look, this is not. This is. I'm just going to. I'm going to stick in us in the safety net, or I'm going to stick with this old job that's not having the maximum amount of impact that I can potentially have on society." So you'll get no argument from me and. You know what? I'd actually be surprised if we do get a whole bunch of shit for this because I think it makes a whole bunch of sense. You want government dealing with things like looking after people's health care, looking after people's education. These aren't things that should be tied to employment because people want to be entrepreneurial. They need to take risks and they won't take risks if they think that if they get sick, if they get pneumonia, they're not going to get treated by a doctor. Right. There's two sides of it, right? There's the reducing risk, which is the safety net side, where uh, we've talked about it. The fact that I was in Taiwan and had national health insurance made it right. easier to start to techery, right? And on the flip side, you need to reduce the barriers, right? So there, there's it's like two sides of, of a product, like any product you launch, right? If you launch a new product, there's tent pole or there's there's like table stakes features you have to have. If you want to watch a phone, want to launch a phone, you need to have an app store with a bunch of apps in it. It's table right. stakes, right? But you also need to have like the draw, the differentiator, right? There's two sides of a product. It's the same thing here. When we think about our society, there's two sides. We need to have, and that's why, safety and then more freedom on the, on the other side to pull it off. I don't know. I guess my, my hope is the... There's a queer cleavage sort of happening in, in I think politics generally that that it kind of cuts orthogonally to our traditional party structure. Yes, and if there is a silver lining to that, it's that that's creating the conditions for for new new parties, new new coalitions, and uh, like any like anyone, I'm hopeful that that <laughs> my position comes out ahead. Yeah, well, I, I I would I would say the same. Look, if there's one thing, and I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but if there's one thing that I have hope as a result of all the internal combustion that's happening inside of the Republican Party right now is that you want to build something new, you, like what we've said all along, you kind of have to burn it all down first. And I think that there is a there is a wide open gap to reassess some of the underlying assumptions behind politics in this, like globally, like some of these policy ideas that we've been talking about. And if as a result of everything that's been going on, the 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 right side of politics in the US decides to come back and take a long, hard look at what makes sense and starts to move in this direction, then I think that would be a fantastic outcome. Well, I, if it happens, I think it'll be deeper than that, though. I mean, there's deep cleavages in the Democratic Party right now. I mean, you, right. saw, that, you saw that in the primaries. Yeah. And you see the same thing in the UK. I mean, there, there are two parts of the Conservative Party and there are two parts of the Labour Party. And at, at some point, you, one has to wonder if 
that will be the, like it's basically like there's there's been this there's like four quadrants right mm. and and the line has been a horizontal one yes and what if that line shifts to being a vertical one and you have like two just completely new coalitions it's happened before i mean we had a great reordering of the political parties post-world war ii in the civil rights era and that was about social issues right and the, the and since then the u.s has it's been social issues that have glued the coalitions together on, on, on both sides and generally kind of shared economic issues but as more social issues become settled uh yeah. maybe there will be this new sort of cleavage i don't know we're 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 straying far afield from from tech but um but then again to the point of my article perhaps not not far afield at all yeah no and i i think that's right i like the way that you framed like maybe this is my consulting roots the two by two and thinking about how these how those lines could be redrawn as as this plays out is a really interesting is really interesting to think about anyhow uh <laughs> that got political quickly uh but but i guess that's that is the fundamental implication if you follow what i wrote to its logical conclusions right like if the implication is that in the first era we just made the current system society structure we had better and this new one is going to completely tear it apart. That, by definition, has to impact every single part of society. It, it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, it, it is impossible to have a, a zoomed out version of this conversation without bringing at least policy, but to a certain extent, politics into it, because it's 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 going to be the case that as these peoples slip through the cracks whether it's efficiency these efficiency based company efficiency driven innovations inside of companies someone's going to need to catch them at some point and that's probably going to be government and and it just the regulation puts its fingers in everywhere as to how this plays out so I, I think it is very in our defense it's very hard to have one of these conversations without bringing politics into it yeah, no, I, I agree. Anyhow, um, I'm glad that you were able to find uh, sufficient uh, or satisfactory health care in, in Indonesia. Uh, to be fair, I brought the. I, I don't travel to developing countries without bringing my own antibiotics with me. And the diagnosis was made by a doctor friend of mine back in Boston right now. So. <laughs> The internet is a wonderful I think that, thing. I think one, you benefited from 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 the internet, and two, you definitely violated some regulations. Okay, well, I, I'm not going <laughs> to tell anybody anything else because I'm going to get somebody in trouble if I do. Hey, worked out worked worked out for this podcast. A new a new business made possible by the internet, and there made possible by, and made possible by Mailchimp, which is which is definitely an internet company. So our thanks to Mailchimp again for uh, sponsoring Exponent as they do every week, and uh, I will I hope you feel better. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you next. Oh, I will not talk to you next week. I will talk to you in two weeks. Two weeks. Sounds good. All right. Talk to you later. See you, mate. Bye-bye.